everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use constant questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. We have an excellent immunocompromised host episode today with a team from Stanford. Our co-host is Dr. Ralph Tayar. He is currently a transplant immunocompromised ID fellow at Stanford in Palo Alto, California, where he also completed his ID fellowship. Very happy to be here with you guys. Joining as our discussant today is Dr. Jessica Ferguson, a clinical assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Stanford. She completed a one-year transplant ID fellowship there in 2021 and joined the clinical faculty later that year. Her academic interests include medical education, transplant protocol development, CMV, antimicrobial resistance, and antibiotic stewardship. Thanks for having us today. Okay, so as everyone's favorite culture podcast, before we get into the case, I always like to open it up to ask if you could share a little piece of culture about something that brings you happiness. I would love to hear something that you guys have enjoyed recently. Maybe I'll start with you, Ralph. Like everyone, I'm enjoying the World Cup <laughs> and <laughs> and all of the very uh, nice games that we're having this season. What about you, Jessica? Um, I sadly have not been watching the World Cup, but I am watching binge watching the show Billions, which I think is a bit old now <laughs> from Showtime. Uh, but it's been very uh, it's been a nightly activity recently. Well, our consult question today is about an elderly woman with febrile neutropenia. Uh, the team would like assistance with evaluating the patient and what antimicrobials we recommend. So, Ralph, can you kick us off on the case? Sure. So, this is a 77-year-old female with mild dysplastic syndrome, or MDS, um, diagnosed nine months prior to presentation, treated with erythropoietin, with associated prolonged severe neutropenia for three months prior to presentation, and for that, she's been on levofloxacin and prophylaxis. She unfortunately had the recent transformation to acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, four weeks prior to presentation, and was started on chemotherapy with oral desetamine and a synthetic uh, nucleoside analog called cedazuridine uh, in combination with venetoclax. Uh, her first cycle... Um, Day one uh, was three weeks prior to admission. She started having a cough two weeks prior to presentation, which was non-productive throughout the day, non-resolving with antihistamines and the levofloxacin that she was taking as neutropenic prophylaxis. Her associated symptoms uh, were mostly daily fevers of five days duration with a Tmax of 102 and diffuse abdominal pain which was not improving on metronidazole and levofloxacin for five days duration. Uh, she had diarrhea of three days duration, shortness of breath, diffuse body aches, one day prior to admission, uh, prompting the admission to the, to the ED. So in the ED, she was afebrile, hemodynamically stable, with normal blood pressure, heart rate was normal, respiratory rate was normal, and she was setting 100% on rumor. Her physical exam was actually notable for lungs were clear to auscultation bilaterally and a soft abdomen, just mild uh, diffuse abdominal tenderness to palpation. 
She was noted, though, to have pancytopenia with a WBC count of 0.1, hematocrit of 22, and platelets of 3. Pertinent in her medications were acyclovir and levofloxacin prophylaxis. She was not on antifungal prophylaxis due to drug-drug interactions with her chemotherapy. And then, so as ID people, we like to um, to have a very long social history, <laughs> and we have a long social history here. Uh, she is cur- she is originally from China, born and raised there. She immigrated to the Bay Area in California in 1970s, and she last went back to China around two years ago. She is currently retired, but used to work as an administrator uh, in an elderly care facility. She currently lives in San Jose, California, with her daughter, her family, and a very cute pet dog. Uh, she has no known TB exposures, and her last quantifier was negative at the beginning of the year. She denied construction next to her place or in her place. She denied any mold at home, exposure to any birds or pigeon droppings, or issues with the water or AC systems at home. Uh, no gardening, no hiking, and no camping recently. She never smoked, uh, doesn't use any illicit drugs, and does not drink alcohol. So initially, uh, she had a negative workup in the ED, including a viral panel, a gastrointestinal uh, PCR, C. diff PCR, and the urinalysis. However, a CT angiogram of the chest to rule out mostly pulmonary embolism showed no pulmonary embolism, but was pertinent for multiple rounded opacities throughout the lungs bilaterally, with the largest measuring 2.6 centimeters in the right lower lobe. So at this stage, uh, Jess, what do you think of a differential in her and what are the next steps for workup and management? Thanks for that introduction, Ralph. Uh, So I'm just going to summarize the case first. So we have a 77-year-old lady who was diagnosed with MDS, now transformed to AML, presenting with a cough for approximately two weeks and neutropenic fevers to 102, despite levofloxacin and metronidazole, with imaging notable for multiple rounded opacities on her CT chest. So when I'm seeing these types of patients uh, for neutropenic fever, I first start off by thinking of the differential and and putting things in order of what would be most likely. So the differential will focus primarily on pulmonary nodules, which is what you're describing with these multiple rounded opacities. The differential itself is extremely long, as most things can cause a pulmonary nodule, but there's a few key points about this case that bring several differentials to the top for me. For this case, invasive fungal infections comes to the top of my differential for a few reasons. The first one being her risk factor of prolonged neutropenia. AML itself would be a risk factor to uh, put her high on the list for this, but as well as her MDS with the prolonged neutropenia before transformation to AML without antifungal prophylaxis makes this more concerning. A few features too about her CT chest. So what we're describing, it sounds like a halo sign, but you may also see a reverse halo. So that's a pulmonary nodule surrounded by circumferential ground glass 
or a reverse halo sign is seen, it's the opposite, where a dense consolidation with ground glass in the center, both of which are associated with invasive fungal infections. Halo sign more commonly with invasive aspergillus and reverse halo can be seen in pulmonary mucormycoses. But for these reasons, I would you know, put fungal, broad fungal workup at the top. Um, other things beyond aspergillus and mucormycoses uh, would be sort of any fungal infections in the environment. So in this population, that includes cryptococcus, Gidosporium, Lamentospora. We also need to consider dimorphic fungal infections, given she's um, lived in California, but also traveled from originally from China. So coccidioides is common in this part of California, but also consider histoplasma and blastomyces. Um, interesting in her social history, also being from China, we you touched on her TB risk factors. Um, other than originating from China, it doesn't sound like she has anything terribly concerning for TB. The negative quantifieron, sometimes you have to take with a grain of salt if that's tested at the time of the um, hematologic malignancy diagnosis, but uh, nothing I've heard so far um, makes me too concerned for TB. So overall, invasive fungal infection, particularly aspergillus being at the top, but you also need to consider non-infectious etiologies in this, um, in this case. So um, in the right patient population, and maybe not this patient, you know, lung cancer presenting as a solitary pulmonary nodule would be the most common cause kind of worldwide. But in these patients, we also see things, um, rheumatologic causes, so sarcoid, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, uh, very common to also see cryptogenic organizing pneumonia presenting as multiple pulmonary nodules with a cough. Um, so all these things together are nonspecific, but putting the patient's risk factors uh, to, together with their radiology and uh, their presentation can help you hone in on the diagnosis. So next going on to what I would do for workup. So we have the advantage of having several non-invasive studies that can look for invasive fungal infections, the most common being the aspergillus galactomannan that you can send from blood or bronchoscopy, BAL fluid, as well as the 1,3-beta-D-glucan, or also known as a fungitel. At our institution, we also have available uh, a mold PCR, which includes aspergillus as well as mucormycoses, um, so that is helpful to send if you have that available. And other things to round out the differential, including a cryptococcal antigen, you would consider sending a coccidioides antibody, possibly also a coccidioides antigen, given her uh, travel history be from, being from California. So I would send all of those things first. And... Um, the next step is to consider if, you know, pending on your non-invasive workup is always a question of uh, where do we go from here? Oftentimes these patients can't undergo biopsy because of their severe thrombocytopenia. Um, so you're left with, again, relying on your non-invasive workup, your, your clinical suspicion, and deciding if it's worth pursuing just a, a standard BAL without biopsy if you can't get a tissue sample.
Okay, great. Thank you, Jess, for a great differential and uh, for uh, jump-starting the workup. So um, in our patient, uh, she did have blood cultures. She did have serum aspergillus galactamin and cryptoantigen COXI antibody and a 1,3-beta-D-glucan and a mold PCR uh, that you mentioned. And they were all negative. Uh, just to re remind the audience, our mold PCR includes PCRs for different species of aspergillus, mucoralis, scytosporium, and fusarium. So um, in this patient, we actually started her on IV embism, 5 milligram per kilogram daily. Cefepime and metronidazole were started by the primary team. So just do you agree with this uh, empiric therapy at this point? And what do you think about uh, her negative uh, non-invasive serologies and PCRs? So I agree with what the team did, that while you're waiting for further studies, I would personally start amphotericin B as well. That way you're covering broadly for invasive fungal infections. Again, most species of aspergillus will be covered by ambosome as well as covering mucor, which would be more aggressive and something you don't want to miss. An alternative would be to just start a mold active azel, so such as voriconazole or posaconazole. That would cover aspergillus, and posaconazole itself also does have some coverage for mucormycosis. But um, in this patient, given how high risk she is, I agree that ambosome would be the right choice. And then your antibiotics are more for neutropenic fever. Uh, it's appropriate to cover broadly, especially while um, still undergoing further workup. You haven't fully ruled out a bacterial infection yet, um, and she should be covered for pseudomonas. In terms of her workup, it's not surprising uh, that all her studies were negative. We see this quite commonly. It would be more common to see a negative fungitella, negative serum galactamanin in, in someone that was on a mold active azole for prophylaxis as those tests have lower sensitivity um, in those that are on antifungals. In general, it's not uncommon to see a negative non-invasive workup, which is why um, we often have to proceed to BAL or, and or biopsy in these cases. So in terms of the non-invasive fungal diagnostics, it's a very wide range of sensitivity and specificity depending on which tests we're talking about. So I'll start with the 1,3-beta-D-glucan. This often is the first thing get, that gets sent in your workup. And overall, the sensitivity is quite poor. The data range from 33 to 100% sensitivi sensitivity and specificity, again, ranging from 30% to 94%. So it's really not a good uh, or reliable test uh, to make a definitive diagnosis for invasive fungal infection. And some of the disadvantages are, is, are that it cross-reacts with many different fungi. Um, so it's not going to give you a, a specific fungal infection, as well as it has many false positives. So a positive 1,3-beta-D-glucan could be seen in just a high rate of candida colonization. 
again, it would be a marker if you had invasive aspergillus, but also could be seen um, false positives being recent, certain recent medications, including IVIG, which is quite common in this patient population. Um, so it's not something that I would um, use uh, solely to make this diagnosis. The next being the aspergillus galactamanin. So this can be sent from both uh, serum and BAL. The sensitivity of the serum is between 60 and 79%, and for BAL is slightly less sensitive, being 58 to up to 90. And specificity, again, ranges around 80 to 90% for both serum and BAL. So this is a bit better test. Um, again, it's looking for aspergillus, but can cross-react with other molds. And the sensitivity and specificity is really highest in this patient population, so neutropenic patients with or with a hematologic malignancy. So this would be the appropriate host to send it. And then lastly, if your institution has access to or availability to send out is the mold PCRs. And this has really changed our way of diagnosing invasive fungal infections in this high-risk group. So this is, it can be an in-house or a send-out test. In general, you can send a PCR on both um, serum or plasma as well as body fluids, so it could be sent on a BAL as well. The sensitivity and specificity of the PCRs are both quite high, between 80 up to high 90% for both. Uh, the most sensitive test is going to be if you are PCRing an actual sample. That's uh, going to be your highest yield, but you can still get up to a sensitivity in the high, high 70s to 80s on just a serum sample or BAL sample alone. With, and that includes great specificity. So again, high 90s in specificity. So with a PCR from a BAL or from plasma, you can make a diagnosis of probable invasive fungal infection without a tissue sample. Uh, so you can get very close to definitive diagnosis here. Uh, so thankfully, uh, our patient had pulmonary uh, team on board as well, and she underwent bronchoscopy, demonstrating normal airway mucosa and only a small amount of clear secretions in the lower lobes. These were washed out and sent for cultures. So the cultures that were sent, bacterial fungal AFB cultures, were negative. And aspergillus galactamanan, aspergillus PCR, mucoralis PCR, PJP PCR, and the respiratory viral panel were also negative. She had repeat CT chest without contrast two weeks later, because uh, at this time we did not really have a diagnosis yet. And that showed marked increase in size and number of nodular and mass-like uh, consolidations with surrounding ground glass. So at this point, uh, what would you do just... Um, and what do you think of the invasive diagnostics that she had? So this is a fairly classic picture. Again, she's been on ambisome, so you're still treating for an invasive fungal infection, but you've seen worsening on her CT scan. Again, you've, you've done everything correctly of, of the non-invasive workup um, has still been negative, so unfortunately that's not going to help get you an answer, but... At this point is when you need to consider going for a tissue diagnosis. 
So we briefly mentioned it before, um, but there's three classifications of invasive fungal infections, proven, probable, and possible. And ideally, you want to get into at least the proven or probable group. But to make that diagnosis, you need a tissue. So for a proven invasive fungal infection, you need to just meet one of four different criteria. Those four criteria are either based on histopathology, so you're seeing fungal elements on histopath, so on a tissue biopsy. You can have a fungal from culture, again, from a sterile site. So this excludes BAL as it's not sterile, but needs to be a biopsy. Uh, this also includes blood cultures that yield mold. That would be most common for fusarium, not so much for aspergillus here. Or four would be tissue PCR amplification has been added as one of the four criteria. So if you have PCR positive from a tissue sample, that would give you a diagnosis. That would give you a proven invasive fungal disease diagnosis. Now for probable, we mentioned this can be done of PCR from a non-sterile sample. So if you do get a BAL without biopsy that's positive for mold, her presentation would be consistent with invasive fungal disease and would put her in the probable category. So at this time, I would consider going for a biopsy um, if her platelets are stable enough, would, uh, would do a tissue biopsy and not just a BAL alone. That's because your sensitivity of BAL cultures are still quite poor. It ranges from 30 to 60% will yield a positive result. Um, but you can increase that up to 78% sensitivity if, if a biopsy is done with culture as well as PCR. So those are the things I would consider if, if pulmonary is willing. So pulmonary were actually not willing to do the case, um, but uh, we had interventional radiology weigh in, and um, she underwent a CT-guided biopsy, uh, which was sent for cultures. At this point, the cultures are pending, but she had repeat serum aspergillus PCR um, at that point, which was all, almost two weeks from her presentation, and that one was actually positive for aspergillus species. And in our institute, aspergillus species indicates aspergillus fumigatus or aspergillus niger or aspergillus flavus. And then the cultures uh, from your CT-guided biopsy came back with five colonies of aspergillus fumigatus. So she was switched to voriconazole orally and caspofungin was added for salvage therapy given the persistent neutropenic fevers at this point. Unfortunately, after a prolonged hospital stay, uh, the patient passed away. Uh, just at this point, this was a difficult case to diagnose uh, with pulmonary nodules. Do you have any final thoughts about pulmonary nodules with negative workup? I think your team did everything correctly, and I'm glad that this patient was on ambosome at the beginning of her hospital stay because I would be worried about fungal infections progressing if she had just been on an azole alone. And unfortunately, we saw that it did progress despite appropriate therapy with initially ambosome and then boriconazole and caspofungin. 
Uh, the data shows that Vori is the superior drug. It's been studied in clinical trials compared to ambazome. The Caspa fungin is used in severe cases as salvage therapy and in combination with voriconazole. In general, it's done just for the first seven days of therapy. I would definitely add it in someone with neutropenic fevers with the degree of neutropenia that she has. I'm not clear in this case how effective it would be if she had already gotten a week or more of amphotericin, but appropriate um, given how severe her disease was. So it's often the case that unfortunately we don't get an answer, whether it's our non-invasive or even invasive workup with a biopsy being negative or non-diagnostic for whatever reasons. And that's where you have to learn to deal with uncertainty um, and pick a regimen that makes the most sense. If this patient with ongoing neutropenia and neutropenic fevers, I would have kept her on ambazome if we didn't have a tissue diagnosis. If they were stable, neutropenic fevers maybe had resolved, then it may be appropriate to switch to an oral azole, maybe either posaconazole or isobuconazole. And then you're wanting to follow up and monitor with serial CT scans to see if you have guessed correctly. And ideally, these nodules will ultimately cavitate and then contract and scar down. And that would be the natural progression of treated invasive fungal infection. I love that. It's a perfect summary. Nothing's quite as good as neutrophils, and we often don't get an answer, and you just do your best. I love it too. <laughs> like that's every case we see. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, that's probably we like rarely get an answer. I'm just so happy we're done. Um. <laughs> Thanks so much to Ralph and Jessica for joining Febrile today. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where you'll find the consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.